Uh, I'm kind of a typical dad. Um, I raise my kids, especially all my kids, but especially my sons, um, wrestling with them, fighting, um, roughhousing, all the things. Um, we would fake box, you know, and I'd pick them up and body slam them gently on, you know, while making all the sound effects like it's a big deal, like, oh, you know, and of course they're hitting and kicking and doing everything they can as hard as they can, and I'm supposed to pretend like it hurts while trying not to hurt them back, which incidentally I wasn't always great at. But, um, but there's always this weird transition, especially with your sons, where um, they start getting a little stronger, um, and they start hitting a little harder, and, and, uh, and I don't think they always realize how much stronger they've gotten, and the problem is, as dad, I'm still supposed to kind of hold back, you know, and, uh, and now they can do damage, and so you're, you're like trying to still be dad and be gentle while, um, while they can all of a sudden hit harder, and normally there's this like maturing point. Where, uh, like, I think the sons get it, and it's always unspoken. They get that, that, uh, that they could hurt me. And, uh, and so, and we both kind of realize we're adults now. Sooner or later, someone's going to get really hurt, and the wrestling kind of slows down, kind of stops. Um, and it's a, it's a normal part of relationship. Well, my son Elijah, um, and I have never reached that level of maturity. Um, he's the one that sometimes plays guitar. He's kind of a, a, a big, beefy power lifter, and, um, He's way stronger than I am, but I'm way heavier than he is. So we, we, uh, we fight all the time, and we've never actually had a fight in anger. It's always playful wrestling, and, uh, but it, it, reached a, uh, it usually reaches a point of doing some damage. Um, we hurt each other. Uh, in fact, the very first time his wife ever came and hung out with our family, like came to kind of meet us, we were going to look at Christmas lights, and Elijah was wearing this really thick um, jean jacket that was my grandpa's that um, I loved, but it was too short for me. It like my belly button hang out the bottom. It was ridiculous. So he he wears it, and uh, and it's this big thick thing. So when I, whenever he wears it, I grab him and I just shake him around because the coat can hold up to it. And he yells, "I don't like being manhandled," and it's this big thing we do, and and we always wrestle and fight, and uh, and we've done it a million times. <laughs> We're going out to the van to get in to go look at Christmas lights, and Katie, his now wife, girlfriend at the time, was with us, and and he walks past me, and I grab the coat, and I kind of slam him into the van like I always do, and he's screaming and yelling, and he had just grabbed a garden hoe. He's like, I'm going to hit you with this garden hoe, like which he always threatens, things like that, and so I shake him and let him go, and he throws the garden hoe at me, like, and... uh and then I feign, you know, I can't believe you threw a garden hole at me. That's what we do. We always feign, like, shock that the other one would do something mean. And uh, and he was like, I told you I was going to. And so we're yelling back and forth. What we don't realize is Katie has already dialed 911, and her finger is hovering over the send button. She's never seen anybody do this. Like, she's never seen two grown men, like, throw garden implements at one another. And so... Uh, and so she didn't talk all night. She thought we had like a real fight. Like it took a while to convince her that this is what she, now she's seen it a hundred times. And, uh, but, but apparently, um, we've now reached this place. Uh, the worst part of wrestling with Elijah is the fact that, um, he still pretty much just wails on me like he's a little kid. He hits me way harder than I hit him, but I'm still the dad and I'm supposed to hold back a little bit. Um, so usually like, and he's gotten to where he'll hit me in the face, he'll hit me in the head, like all while I'm trying to tackle him to the ground. And I've got this thing I do where it's just one move I've used on him since he was a little kid. He still can't figure it out. And I get his arm pinned around his head and I just rabbit punch his ribs until he taps out. That's pretty much the thing. Pretty much what we do. And, 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 uh, and all the while, he is just wailing on me. It's, it's horrible. But the goal is to get him to tap out. 
And then we both lay there like a couple of walruses, like, you know, breathing heavy and dying because we're both in terrible cardiovascular shape. But, uh, and we talk about how we're both getting way too old for this. And we do this about monthly. Um, so it's pretty terrible. But we're going to learn this morning that sometimes it's all about the fight. It's all about fighting. Um, we're drawing really close to the halfway point of this year that we've committed to core strength. Um, for the past few years, God has given me a theme for each year's study. Um, and so we study all kinds of things, but we always try to come back to that theme and lean into it a little bit. And this year I felt like God gave me the, the phrase core strength. Um, a little bit cheesy, you know, big fitness craze. But, uh, but since January, we've been going back to some good old foundational theology, which I think has been awesome. I think it's been a lot of fun. Um, is everybody's core feeling stronger? Like everybody, you know, don't look at my belly. It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. Um, but we're about halfway through our year of core strength. And God's already starting to talk to me about what we're doing next year. I'm getting super pumped about that. But we got work to do today. Um, my favorite thing about this morning's passage is that Paul is going to do a big part of my job for me. Whenever I do these long series, um, I almost always try to start uh, with a bit of a review, some of our, our last couple ideas, um, uh, so that we're all on the same page as we dive into the new text. Well, this week, Paul does the review for me. Um, so we're just going to dive straight into the passage and let that be our review. I'm going to be reading in chapter 7, starting in verse 1. It says, Now, dear brothers and sisters, you are familiar with the law. Don't you know that the law applies only while a person is living? For example, when a woman marries, the law binds her to her husband as long as he is alive. And when he dies, the law of marriage no longer applies to her. So while your husband is alive, she she would be committing adultery if she were to marry another man. But if a husband dies, she is free from that law and does not commit adultery when she remarries. So my dear brothers and sisters, this is the point. You have died to the power of the law when you died with Christ. And now you are united with the one who was raised from the dead. As a result, you can produce a harvest of good deeds for God. So this, Paul's using a metaphor of marriage um, to reiterate the message we had two weeks ago. In the beginning of chapter 6, Paul says the reason we don't just keep on sinning is because with Jesus, um, as, as shown in baptism, we died. Um, that part of us is dead. When we are buried with Christ in baptism, um, we die with Him. So here Paul uses the marriage contract as evidence of that very reality. Um, we say the words, until death do us part in the marriage ceremony, um, as confirmation of exactly what Paul is saying. No matter where you stand on marriage and divorce, uh, the one thing we can all agree on is that when a spouse dies, um, you're, you're legally free to marry again. So Paul is driving home what we've been saying for two weeks now, and that is that we have died, and that that death changes the game. It, it's a game changer. We're no longer bound by that contract that says, if you sin, you will die. We sinned, and we died. That contract is fulfilled. Um, we don't live under the same covenant that we did. And not because God just changed the game, but because we died. We fulfilled it. Um, which opens up uh, the topic that we studied last week. Um, Paul says, so dear brothers and sisters, this is the point. You died to the power of the law when you died with Christ. And now you're united to the one who was raised from the dead. As a result, you can produce a harvest of good deeds for God. Um, when, you were, when we were controlled by our old nature, sinful desires were at work within us, and the law aroused these evil desires that produce a harvest of sinful deeds resulting in death. And now we have been released from the law, and we have died to it and no longer captive to its power. Now we can serve God, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the Spirit. This is basically last week's message in a nutshell. We didn't die to sin so that we can just run wild and do whatever we want. 
Um, we died. Uh, that's not the biblical idea of freedom. We, Paul basically points out that we are um, free from this whole idea of sin and death so that we can be more of what we were created to be. We can, we can, uh, we can live the way God made us to live because we were not made to sin. Paul finishes up this kind of recap uh, the way we ended last week by recognizing the kind of paradigm-shifting nature of the new covenant, which is that the presence of the Holy Spirit affects change from inside. The law could only affect change from the outside. It could only change behavior. The Holy Spirit goes inside of us and changes our very nature, changes us from the inside the way the law never could. He says, but now we have, re- we have been released from the law, for we have died to it and no longer captive to its power. Now we can serve God um, uh, not in the way of the old letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the Spirit. So Paul's going to expound on that a lot next week um, in chapter 8. Uh, but basically that's our recap. Paul, in chapter 6, you know, lays out some theology, and then at the beginning of chapter 7, he recaps that. He, he reiterates all that in metaphor um, form. Uh, that the way we deal with sin is by believing God when he says we've died to it, so that we can now actually obey the Holy Spirit. Um, which brings us to the nitty-gritty. Um, that we've been kind of hinting at for several weeks now. Uh, but before we dive headfirst into it, there's a little nuance I do want to pull out of that first section that I think is important. Uh, because Paul says this, while her husband is alive, um, she will be committing adultery if she marries another man. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law and does not commit adultery if she remarries. Now, I know this is a metaphor, and you want to be careful not to stretch metaphors too far. You can overstretch them and get messed up if you try to make them fit perfect, but Paul seems to want us to recognize um, this part of the metaphor. Um, While her husband's alive, she is committing adultery if she marries another man. Here's the thing. Um, We have this tendency to think that because Jesus died for us and because God showed his grace by sending his son as propitiation for sin, that sin no longer matters. That that there's almost like in a generic sense, no one is any longer under the old covenant. And that's just not true. We have this feeling like we're this is the new covenant, you know, God loves everybody. But that's not that's not what this means. Um, that's not true. The old covenant is alive and well and unchanged to everyone who has not died. The old covenant is still the driving covenant to everyone who has not died with Christ. It is still the rule of uh, of law. There's only one way out of that covenant until death do us part. Um, Paul uses this metaphor of marriage that that you're still bound by marriage until death. And so, uh, so the, the, the old covenant that, that drives so much of this is still the covenant to anyone who has not died to it, who, who has not been released from that commitment by death, um, the death that is, that is uh, imitated in baptism. Um, everything we've been saying about being dead to sin and free to pursue human life the way it was created to be pursued, this God-honoring life, all that theology is only available to those who have died in Christ by putting their faith in Jesus. For everyone who has not died with Christ, by accepting a relationship with Him, they're still bound by the old covenant. And the way Paul makes it sound to try and live a life of grace and try to live free from the old covenant of sin and death, if you haven't died and been freed from that, would be like spiritual adultery. You're not allowed to do it. Um, you're, you're trying to live with a new husband while still being married to the old one. Not acceptable. And this is why preaching the gospel is so important. If you tell people that God loves them, and you tell them that it doesn't matter what they do, and you tell them that, that, that sin is a thing of the past, and that um, our, you know, our sins have all been you know, covered, and you fail to tell them that that happened at a great price, 
that that happened because Jesus died in our place for them on the cross and we join Him in death when we put our faith in Him as acted out in baptism, if you leave out that piece, it's adultery. You're basically saying that you can live in both covenants and that's not okay. We have to preach the Gospel. We, are, we only get released from the Old Covenant by death when we are baptized with Christ. So if you try to leave the rest behind and you leave out the true essence of the Gospel, which is the cross... You're living in spiritual adultery, which is not okay. Um, but here's the harder part, um, and I don't uh, have time to truly dig into this, so I'm just going to kind of plant it in your brain and let you chew it on in your own time. Um, but if it's wrong for someone in the Old Covenant to try and live as though they're in the New Covenant without dying to be released from the Old Covenant, then it's likely just as adulterous to be freed from one marriage, to remarry into a new marriage, a new covenant, and then try to go back and live in the first marriage. That would be just as wrong. Which is a metaphorical way of saying, once you've accepted the grace of God and died with Jesus in baptism, going back and living under the law is not alright. If Paul's right about this marriage stuff, it's adultery. Which is likely why Paul gets so angry when the Galatians try to do just that. They try to do that very thing. They were, people were getting saved and people were coming in and after them saying, okay, now that you're saved, you've got to go back and get circumcised, you've got to live under the law, you've got to do the rule. And Paul loses it. And it almost seems out of balance a little bit sometimes. You're like, what's the big deal? If someone wants to get circumcised afterwards, who really cares? Like, let them do what they want. You know? And Paul will not have it. Like, he, get, he, goes, he goes nuts in Galatians, like, like, tells them, you've fallen from grace. He says some really harsh things about these people who, who have accepted grace and want to go back and live under the law. Like, he gets, and I think it's because of this passage. It's because, is, like, you, these, Two marriages are very separate. You can't blend them. You only get released by death. So Paul's relationship says, yes, um, you know, when we, when we die to our first marriage, we're released. Um, but that puts us in a new marriage. Like it puts us in a new commitment, a new way of living, a new frame of reference, a whole new paradigm. Um, it's a whole new thing. So you can kind of unpack that on your own. But um, after recapping chapter six, chapter 6, Paul dives into um, the hard part that I've been hinting at for several weeks now. The truly difficult passage about sin. The conclusion to which many people don't like. Um, it's a tough conclusion. And Paul starts by asking the third of his four questions that have been kind of guiding the outline for this section. He says, well then, am I suggesting, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? And this seems like a weird question, but I think it reveals a couple things. First, how seriously Paul takes grace. Um, I think many, many heated debates in Paul's life have led to him including this question. Paul preached grace so vigorously, kind of so unswervingly, that people accused him of hating the law. When he gets arrested in Jerusalem, they was actually arrested with, under the charge of that he goes all about telling people not to obey the law. Like, and so he kind of had a reputation of an anti-law guy. Um, and so I think that's why he, he kind of includes this, uh, this question that people, he felt like people were accusing him of teaching that the law of God was, um, was sinful. And so, um, so I think part of why Paul includes this question is because he had a reputation of being a law hater. Um, so I think Paul is saying, despite what you've heard, no, the law is not sin. I've never taught the law is sin. I'm not saying the law is sin. The law is not sin. Um, but the second thing I think is hidden in this is that we as humans are both unbelievably binary. Um, we, we love either or, black, white, yes, no, on or off, one or zero, grace or law. 
Like we have this either or totally binary way of looking at everything. Um, so we just naturally go, okay, well, grace is good, then law is bad, right? That's, that's how it has to be, on or off, one or the other. Like you can't have both. So, so we, we just have this tendency to divide everything in half and think it's got to be either or. Um, and I think Paul is saying, so I'm pushing grace so hard that God has done this for us your natural conclusion is going to be, okay, well, if grace is good, then law is bad. He's like, no, 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 that's not what I'm saying. That's not how this works. And the way Paul answers that question is kind of enlightening. He says, well, then, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said you must not covet. But sin used this command to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. If there had been no law, sin would, have, would not have that power at one time I lived without an understanding of the law. And when I learned the command not to covenant, for instance, the power of sin came to life and I died. So I discovered that the law's command, which were supposed to bring life, brought spiritual death instead. Sin took advantage of those commands and deceived me. It used the commands to kill me. But still, the law itself is holy and the command is holy and right and good. Okay, this passage is huge. Um, and it's really deep and a powerful part of a biblical worldview, honestly. Um, Jesus dug into this heavily, um, and it was revolutionary in that day. Um, and I still think it is. Uh, and it's absolutely under attack today, honestly. Um, and this is a difficult to talk about because some of this language we just take for granted. We don't really think about what we're saying. Um, and some people just don't believe it at all. So we're going to unpack. Let's unpack this together. Um, have you ever heard love is a verb? Love is an action. Love is something you do. Like, we say this all the time. Um, and obviously what we mean is that love is not an emotion. It's not a noun. It's not a thing you have. Um, like anger. I, I have anger. I experience it. I feel anger. I, I recognize anger's presence in me. When we say love is a verb, we're saying love is not that way. It's not something you just feel. Um, it's, it's something you act out. You, you do love. You, you love your spouse by, by doing good deeds for them. It's not just something you experience. Um, you experience all kinds of other things about your spouse, you know, but, but love is something that you do. And it's a biblical concept called agape. It's a, it's something you choose to do, um, do good things. Love isn't just experience, it's expressed in action. You, you, you love somebody by doing good for them. Um, that's what I mean when we say love is a verb. Well, sin is the opposite. Um, we tend to think of sin as a verb. Right? An action. Something you do. He sins or she sinned. I sin all the time. Um, Paul's argument in this passage is that sin is not a verb. It's a noun. It's a thing. It's a presence. So let's look at it again. I'm going to read a little bit of this again and listen for the nounness. Nounness of the word sin. I don't know if that's a word, but... Um, Listen for the nounness of the word sin here. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting was wrong if the law had not said you should not covet. But sin used this command to arouse all kinds of covetous desires in me. If there were no law, sin would have not have, would not have that power. Can you feel how sin's a noun there? Sin's a thing, and it and it's. It almost has a weird consciousness to it. There's no way to overstate how important this is. The, the way Paul describes sin is absolutely essential to understanding the biblical narrative. It's a big, big deal. Um, because the way Paul explains it, sin was there before the law. Sin got there first. I don't know how, if you see how important that is, but we tend to define sin by breaking a law. Like the law was given, and if I act in a certain way in contrast to that law, that's sin. But Paul is saying that sin was already there when the law showed up. 
And all the law did was make me aware of that fact. All the law really did was show me what was already there. So sin is a noun. And this is why the religious leaders asked Jesus why he wasn't consumed with ritual cleansings and, and things like that. He's like, you know, aren't you worried about being defiled? And Jesus is like, what you do out here isn't what defiles you. It's what comes out of you. It's the things that are already inside of you that come out that defile you. Like, and, and they didn't get that at all because they saw defilement coming from the outside. Just saw, Jesus was like, no, no, no. There's rottenness on the inside. And that, that rottenness is, is what defiles. The problem is what's in here. Not what's out here. Not what you do out here, but what's already in here. This is super important. This is, this is why all humans were subject to the law of sin and death, whether or not they've read the Jewish law. Because you might wonder, like, how can somebody be, be held responsible to a law they've never read or never heard of? Some, some, some kid in Africa who's never read the Jewish law, how can he be subject to it? It's because the sin is there whether the law is there or not. The sin got there first. That's why the law wasn't given until 1500 B.C., and you wonder, how was anybody for the 2,500, 3,500 years before that, how were they subject to it if it wasn't given until 1500 B.C.? It's because sin is the noun that's already there. It is there in every human heart. And all the law does or did, did or does is reveal that to us. It just reveals to us what the nature of our heart already is. So Paul is saying that the law had no effect on sin other than to wake it up and, and wake us up to its presence. Specifically, he uses the law against coveting, which I think is brilliant. Because he's like, I walked around coveting all the time in just a generic way. It was just part of who I was. Like the, like the roots of covetousness were already in me. I barely even noticed. And then all of a sudden, I read, thou shalt not covet. And I'm like, shoot, I guess I better stop doing this. I didn't realize it was offensive, so I decided to quit. And all of a sudden, now I'm, it, I've realized just how much of a part of my life coveting actually is. And I read this law that says stop it, and, I'm, and I start to realize, boy, this is going to be tougher than I thought. I didn't realize I do this all the time. This is just like who I am. Like, how do I quit this? It's like blue car syndrome. You guys know what blue car syndrome is? You buy a blue car, and all of a sudden you notice there's a million blue cars out there you never saw until you owned one. It's like that. Now that I'm looking for it, I realize I am like a machine of covetousness. It's like I'm, I'm just unhappy with what I have all the time and want other stuff and want other people's stuff. It's just like a huge part of who I am. This doesn't just show up like with the revelation that covetousness is wrong. It's me realizing just how much I covet, just how deep this goes in me. It comes from my very core long before I read the law that prohibited it. So sin isn't just an action, it's a presence, it's a condition of the human heart. Which is why I think that Paul, it's awesome that he uses coveting. Of all the sins he could have chosen from, he uses coveting, because coveting is so internal, for the most part, no one else in the world needs to know you're doing it. Like this is like in the heart stuff, like, it, like you could be coveting all day and nobody would ever call you a sinner. Like no one would have a clue that you're doing it. Which is one of the reasons this passage is so important. There's because there's this tendency to view Christianity as behavior management. Like that's really what it does. It, 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 our goal as Christians is to get people to only have sex with the right people and never drink, smoke, cuss, gamble, or dance, and to be honest, contributing citizens, and maybe even act like a kind and compassionate person. Like that's the whole goal of the game. And the problem with that approach is that it's possible to do all of those things. And still have sin deep in your heart. 
In fact, you can do all those things rebelliously, like keeping your heart far from God, and still only sleep with the right person, never drink, smoke, cuss, gamble, or dance, and pretend like you're a kind and compassionate person. You can do all those things and your heart be far from God. Which is why Jesus says, you know, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say don't lust. I'm going for what's inside there. You say don't commit murder. I say don't get angry wrong the wrong way. Like, you've got to deal with your anger. Like, I, for the most part, can usually resist the, the urge to murder. <laughs> anger, I'm not so good at. That comes from, like, deep in there. Like, and when it comes out, it's like, I, it's like I had no control over it. Like, it shows me what's on the inside of me. The point Paul is making here is that the law, the behavior management aspect, though not evil at all, does nothing to help actually manage sin. Because that's not what sin is. Sin is not a behavior. It's a presence deep in the human heart. And this is the real revelation of this message, of this passage. And this understanding is deeply under attack today. Like, we're, we're attacking this on all sides. The more we define things like racism as like a systemic activity in society, rather than an evil that lives in the human heart, the further we get from the real cure. We think we can fix it by outlawing certain words and jokes and changing some social structures and systems. And according to Paul, that backfires and only serves to wake up sin even more. And it doesn't matter if it's wokeism or if it's the religious right. Legislating morality never works. It never has. You can't make people sin less. Because sin is not an action. It is a problem in our heart. In fact, legislating morality actually has the opposite effect. And it can have the dangerous effect like it did on the Pharisees and Sadducees of Jesus' day to make you totally miss the cure. Because you're so caught up in trying to get people to obey God's law. They were so busy working for God, they missed the cure when it came. What a tragedy that we could be so fully committed to serving God that we miss Jesus. But that's not even the real risk. Because remember, this isn't about other people. This isn't about uh, dealing with other people's sin. We're still in the vertical part of the book. We're dealing with our own sin. Not society's sins or our neighbor's sins, but our own personal cleanup job. And the real risk of not grasping the idea that sin is a noun is that you won't grasp the concept that Paul drops on us at the end of this chapter, his conclusion. And if you miss that, it is a true loss. So let's look at where Paul goes from there. He basically explains how the law shows up, makes me realize I'm sinful, and that I was sinful all along long before it got there. And then the same law that condemns me for being sinful, uh, or that same law that shows me I'm sinful condemns me for being so. Which begs the question, if the law had never shown up to tell me I'm sinful, would I have just been fine? Just living in the center, just, just going around sinning, having no idea. Which is basically Paul's fourth question here. He says, uh, did the law, which is good, cause my death? In other words, had it never shown up, would I have just been just fine, sinning away, having no idea, and then all of a sudden the law comes up, shows you you're a sinner, and now all of a sudden I'm responsible for it. Is, it, is the law what really caused my death? 
He said, of course not. Sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation to death. So we can see uh, how terrible sin really is. And it uses God's good commandment for its own evil purposes. So the trouble is not with the law, for it was spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. So Paul's like, of course it wasn't the law that killed me. It was sin. This noun, this thing, this presence in me that killed me. Or at least enslaved me and made me subject to death. And this leads to Paul's big climax of this entire discourse in chapters 6 and 7. The whole thing builds up to this about what life looks like now that we are at peace with God. Because chapter 5 he establishes over and over again, you're at peace with God. And this is one of the easiest passages to empathize with. I think we all feel this. As well as one of the most unsatisfactory conclusions um, if you don't actually get the deep biblical revelation of what is happening here, that sin is a noun. Paul says, I don't really understand myself. For I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. Because I, I want to do it. I want to do what's good. The law is good, and I want to be that. So I'm not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature. I want to do what's right, but I can't. I want to do what's good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't even want to do, I'm not really the one doing wrong. It's sin living in me that does it. I've discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. So Paul finally dives into this ridiculously universal struggle with sin that every single one of us faces. I try to do good, can't pull it off. I try not to do bad things, I do them anyway. And I don't care if it's a sin pattern, or it's your temper, or it's a poor work ethic, or if it's just this deep anxiety that's born out of having trouble trusting God, or, or the amount of time you spend on your phone, or just knowing in your conscience you should eat better, but bad food tastes so darn good. Whatever it is, I don't care where it comes from. All of us know the feeling of not being able to live up the standard that we set for ourselves. The standard that we really want to make it to, and not being able to make it there. I think every single one of us hopes at some level that putting our faith in Jesus will put an end to that. That that will go away. And here, right in front of us, Paul is experiencing the same exact struggle that we all hate so much. And his conclusion isn't always satisfying. He says, I love God's law with all my heart, but there's another power within me that makes that is at war with my mind. That power makes me a slave to sin um, that is still within me. Uh, oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law. But because of my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. Paul opens this by saying he loves God's law with all of his heart. And I think this is significant. I think the, the struggle to, to never be able to live up to our own standards is universal to humanity. But when that standard is God's law, when it's, when it's, um, when you set God's law as that standard, I really want to be holy. I really want to, to please God. Not out of fear of punishment, but because you truly want to live God's way. I think that's unique to believers. Um, when you want more than anything else to be holy, um, even though you fall short of it, 
Um, that's what you really, really want. I think that's evidence of the Holy Spirit's presence in your life. Um, you don't just love God's law on your own. Um, at least that's my opinion. I think that deep internal desire to please God comes from the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. So Paul is basically saying, I know the Holy Spirit is in me because I really do love God's law. I really do. I really want to live that way. Um, but that's not the only thing in there. Um, I also still have sin in me. That noun, that presence, that, um, that has always been there um, that keeps me from obeying God's law. And in, in some of the most kind of beautifully authentic um, words in Scripture, Paul builds chapter 6 and 7 up to this powerful kind of concluding climax of what a miserable person I am who will free me from this life dominated by sin and death. And I usually like the New Living Translation, but this is kind of a terrible translation. The word for word reads like this, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will free me from this dead body I'm dragging around. Paul opens this entire section of the labor. Because remember, we're using the tabernacle as an outline. So chapter 6, he kind of dives into this cleanup process by saying we're dead. We died. That's how this starts. We died uh, when we're baptized. Now he's like, but I'm still dragging this dead body around. What in the world do I do with this dead body now that I've died to sin? You know, since I'm dead. Not if I'm dead, but since I'm dead because God said I am. What do I do with this dead body? Because all the evidence seems to bear out that even though you know, I've died, fulfilled the covenant, demanded my death, sin is still present. It's still here. I mean, there's ample evidence that the Holy Spirit is also here. I know I'm not the same as I was, but I also know I'm not who I should be. And this leaves Paul you know, asking what many of us have been asking since chapter 1 of this book. How do I stop sinning? How do I manage this? And here's Paul's answer on how to handle the dead body that we drag around. I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. <laughs> Which is one of those verses that sounds really vague and, and, and hard to apply, unless you keep it in the context of the book. Because Paul says, we're all sinners. Lawless sinners, legalistic sinners, anyone who thinks they slipped through the crack, all have sinned and fallen short. And God, as an act of His grace, His charis, His something we could never do on our own in a billion years, saved us by sending Jesus to die our death. And we cannot boast of that because it was done for us. And Paul wraps up that entire door and altar section of the letter with this huge statement, chapter 5, that we spent so much time on that we are at peace with God. Paul spends an entire chapter belaboring the point. We leaned in really hard to that. That God's grace fundamentally changes the game. We are now at peace with God. And then we step to the labor to clean up. And Paul's conclusion is, is that only Jesus can do it. You couldn't save yourself, neither can you sanctify yourself. Paul is like, I have fought and struggled and tried and I can't do it. Thank God Jesus can. And I love how Paul leads us to this point. Because the original question, should I go on sinning so that I can receive grace? Or the second question, should we sin that we are, since we're no longer under um, the law? And, and these, these questions are behavior-based. Should we sin? Verb. Like Paul knows how we tend to think about sin. And he's like, okay, let's go with that then. Let's, let's ask that question. Let, let's see what happens if we try to stop sinning. Let's go with the verb idea of sin. Should we, should we sin? Of course we should not. Let's, let's follow that thought and see where it leads us. And almost as if he's discovering these truths as he unpacks them, he says, 
But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing it. It's sin living in me that does it. I've, just, I've discovered this principle in life. Almost like it's, he's realizing this. He's walked us to this point. He started with the sin is verb idea. Should we sin? Should we walk around sinning? And, and he's like, you know what? It, it dawns on me that sin is apparently bigger than just the action. It's something deep in me. It's like you can hear Paul realizing that sin is bigger than behavior. Sin is a noun. And what the heck do you do with that? What do you do when there's no amount of behavior modification you can do? What do you do when there's no amount of cleanup you can do? What do you do with the knowledge that you could live a perfect day, zero sinful behavior, and be just as sinful at the end of the day as you were at the beginning? Because sin's not the behavior. It's the brokenness, the rottenness inside of me. What do you, what do, you do to clean up then? And Paul's conclusion, standing at the laver, is exactly the same as it was standing at the door in the altar. And that is, you don't do it. You don't fix it. You don't clean it up. Jesus does. Jesus does. That's, you can't do it. Who's going to deliver me from the dead body I'm dragging around? Thank God it's Jesus who does it. I thank God it's Jesus who does it. Which means the cleanup is just as much an act of grace as salvation. And listen, you have to go through all of that. <laughs> Everything from, from chapter 1 to these verses. Only after genuinely accepting up to this point everything Paul has said can you come to this conclusion. I've titled this message The Surrender because of this verse. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. Not a verse you hear quoted a lot. Because if you pull this verse out of context, it's ugly. If you don't leave this in the context of the whole book, this is an ugly verse. You don't quote this one all by itself. It starts to sound like you're trying to make an excuse to sin. Completely sounds like, like you're saying, it's okay if I sin. In my mind, I obey God, but with my body, I sin. And Paul uses those major transition words we've been talking about, so you see how it is. Other translations say, therefore. Which always means don't read this until you get everything before it. Until you understand everything before it, don't try to apply this verse. The simple conclusion, with my mind, with my heart, with my will, with my spirit, I surrender fully to God. But my flesh is sinful and will sin. Not just because I do sinful things, but because I am sinful. So Paul surrenders. He taps out. And I've been warning a couple, for a couple of weeks now that Paul's conclusion to this section would be unsatisfactory to many of us because we don't want to surrender. Right? I mean, surely that can't be the answer. It's all on Jesus? And I'm supposed to just surrender to the fact that I'm a sinner and who's going to sin until Jesus either returns or takes me home? Yes, that's pretty much what Paul's saying. If you can come up with another translation for that. Isn't that what he's saying? In his little book, Practicing the Presence of God, Brother Lawrence used to pray this prayer of contrition whenever he would sin. He would say, Forgive me, Lord, but lest you help me, I can do no better. 
Luther used to say, sin boldly, but believe in Jesus even more boldly. Paul says, obey God's law with your mind, but recognize your body will sin. None of these are satisfactory answers. We don't like any of these. But let me add a couple caveats. First, this is between you and God. Remember that. This is the vertical part of the book. This verse never gives you an excuse to hurt someone. You don't get to go, ah, well, what are you going to do? Sorry I hurt you, but I'm a sinner. No, that's not how... This verse never gets you out of the natural consequences of sin. This is not an excuse um, to sin. This verse is not a license um, to sin. Paul has claimed in every possible way in the last two chapters, grace does not mean freedom to sin. That's not what that means. So this verse only fits in the context between you and God. Between you understanding what sin is in your life. Second, this verse needs to be earned. You almost have to discover and unpack it the same way Paul did. Even though he lays it out in this theological form, we we each need to discover for ourselves the depth of our own sinful, selfish core in our relationship with God. In my opinion, just reading doesn't do that. Both the struggle that Paul goes through, he's like, man, I'm trying really hard to do good and I'm failing. I'm trying really hard not to do bad and I'm failing and... Only living in that struggle and kind of subsequent surrender um, works. They're both essential. Only when you've cried out, like from your soul, who will deliver me from this body of death, can you truly surrender to the I thank God that Jesus does it. And then conclude that, that, that as long as I draw breath, I'm, I'm probably going to sin. And third... The dichotomy that Paul creates between mind and flesh here is really, really important. Because hypocrisy is gross. And the lost can smell it a mile away. When we pretend that we have all our sins all put together and ignore the fact that sin is a noun that lives in me, whether I like it or not, and then we start picking on their particular sin, they can see right through that. They can. And it's one reason we pray the prayer of contrition every single week here, because we need to own our sinfulness, even as Christ-following believers. It's important that we own that, that we love God's law with all of our heart, souls, mind, and strength, and we fail to keep it all the time. Because if you don't own that dichotomy, what usually happens is we start to alter God's law to something we can do. We start to bend it. We start to soften the edges a little bit. So that, so that our flesh can, can be a little more comfortable. Because we don't want to live in Paul's conclusion. The gross tension of, of both loving God's law and breaking it all the time is hard to live in. That's hard. And if we aren't willing to own that, we have to start being dishonest about what the Word truly says. And this can be really dangerous. The beauty of Paul's conclusion, as uncomfortable as it may be, is it allows me to be honest with the Scripture, even the ones I'm really bad at keeping. It allows me to accept that that I'm actually supposed to love my enemies, even though I can't. I don't have to go, well, yeah, but some enemies you have to... No, it doesn't say that. This is love your enemies. I can't. And that's okay. Because I love God's law. I want to live in a world where people love their enemies. I want that world. I love the idea of that world and I can't do it. Because I have sin in me. And I refuse to bring that bar down. That bar needs to be up there. Where it doesn't matter how bad someone hurts you, you love them. 
Because that's where Jesus put the bar. And just because I can't do it doesn't mean I can lower the bar. So I live where Paul, where Paul lives. With my heart and mind and soul, I love God's law. I love the rules. I love where Jesus put the bar. I can't do it. I don't have to make excuses for why I can't do it. I don't have to say, well, yeah, Jesus flipped the table in the temple, though, so he gets mad. No, it doesn't change the fact that he told you to love your enemies. It allows me to believe that that I'm utterly responsible to turn the other cheek when someone slaps me. Even though I know I probably won't. Because I have violence in my heart. If someone hits me, I usually hit back. And I shouldn't. I want to live in a world where people turn the other cheek. I love the idea of that world. I look forward to that world one day. But I can't keep it. Because I'm sinful. It allows me to... to to believe it's my responsibility to, to forgive somebody 70 times 7 times. Which I believe I, means I have to make myself vulnerable to them that many times. How in the world am I going to get hurt if I don't make myself vulnerable to them again? Because the, the whole like, I'll forgive you, but I'm going to keep you at arm's length. How do you get hurt 70 times 7 times in that situation? Jesus goes, no, you forgive them 70 times 7 times. I can't do that. I can't. But I also refuse to lower that bar. I also refuse to go, well, yeah, but he didn't say I have to make myself vulnerable to him. Well, he kind of did. I don't know how else you're going to get hurt 70 times, 7 times. So the beauty of Paul's dichotomy here is that it allows us to hold the Scripture where it should be. Even when we can't do it. Because what we tend to do is we tend to grab all the things that we do well and, and pick on those. Because then as long as I, I yell at all these sins that I don't really struggle with myself, then all of a sudden the Scripture starts to feel doable. The bar is where I can handle it. The bar is right where I should be. What Paul does, he goes, no, 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 no. It's up here. And I love it. And I wish I could do it. And I can't. Paul's words allow me to believe that the Bible is true even though I can't live up to it. And maybe even truer because I can't live up to it. Because how small would the Bible be if it just happened to look like my lifestyle? But Paul allows me to hold the Word of God up where it should be even when I fall short. The only thing this understanding won't let me do is judge others. And that's where the real struggle comes in, isn't it? We don't like Paul's surrender because we want other people to stop sinning. And this robs us of the power to judge them for their sin. Because if we accept that we're powerless to overcome sin, this presence in us on our own, that only Jesus can take that out of me, I can't do it. Then where do we get the authority to judge others for their bad behavior and demand better behavior of them? And the very next verse, which is divided by chapter markers in our Bibles, but wouldn't have been in the original letter. The very next verse, um, though beautiful, doesn't help us in our desire to judge others. So there's therefore no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Paul starts with another one of those transitional phrases. So then, therefore, which means having established, 
that with my mind I serve the law of God and with my body I'm a slave to sin. Having established that, there's no condemnation in Christ. We all love Romans 8.1, but none of us often realize it only comes after the surrender of chapter 7, verse 25. The true revelation of the labor is that the cleanup, like everything else in the upside-down kingdom, the gospel of Jesus Christ's kingdom is an act of grace. It's something God does for us. It's not, a, it's not an act of effort. It's an act of grace. So how do we respond to this? I don't have time for a long response, so I'll be quick. The way I'd love to respond to this message is to fight. Fight. Fight your sin. Fight for holiness. Let it be a bloody brawl. Try with everything in you to live right. Try with every fiber of your being to live the righteous life. Don't surrender to sin. That's not where the surrender happens. Try to do good. Try to love. Try to live exactly the way the Bible says you should. That's, that's our, our part. We try with everything in us. Second, fight that fight with all your strength knowing that you're at peace with God. This is not something you do to appease an angry God. This is our desire to be holy. This is our desire because we love the Word of God and we want to live up to it. You're at peace with God. And your fight against sin is not to please Him because He's angry at you or anything like that. You couldn't... He, God could not be any more pleased with you than He already is in Christ. You can't increase His pleasure in you. He sees you in Christ and loves you like that. You're at peace with God. You have to believe that. And third, as you fight, know that you'll lose. It doesn't stop you from fighting. It doesn't stop us from trying to live right. Trying to, But we'll lose. Your sin is so much bigger than your behavior. You will not win this fight on earth. You are outmatched and will be forced into the same conclusion Paul came to, which is a good thing. Don't let that keep you from fighting. Fourth, as you lose your battle with sin, remember again that you're still at peace with God and that He knew you were a hopeless sinner when He saved you and Jesus' blood still covers you. And let that reality build a wonder and a gratitude for the unfathomable grace of God. We should all fight sin and that fight should drive us to the cross in gratitude for God's grace. It should break us. And we should cry out, what am I going to do? I thank God for Jesus. Any talk about sin should drive every one of us to the cross. And finally, know that the day will come when the tables will turn and we will win the battle with sin. Every time I fight Elijah, I know the day will come when I won't be able to get him to tap out. I know that's coming. Truth be told, I have a sneaking suspicion that the tables might have already been turned and he's now doing the hold back thing because he's so much stronger than I am. Just to kind of spare my ego, he lets me win, I think. That's what I think what's happening. But in our battle with sin, the day will come when he who has begun a a good work in us will see it to the end. We'll be faithful to complete it. So fight knowing that we eventually win. But allow all of this to build a humility and a gratitude for the cross of Christ. So that the more brutal your fight with sin, the more passionate your worship and the more passionate love for the God who saved you.